Good morning, everyone. Since our first reading, Paul and Barnabas are preaching. Uh, they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ and about his ways. And as we are told in that first reading, uh, they first go to the Jews because the Jews are the chosen ones. Uh, but the Jewish people are not interested in hearing about this. And as a matter of fact, uh, they are trying to convince Paul and Barnabas to remain faithful to the Jewish traditions instead. And then we see that uh, an uproar begins and there's persecution. Our second reading is a canticle, a vision uh, of those who um, will remain faithful to Christ, those who are persecuted. If they remain faithful, the glory will be in heaven for them. And my friends, our small gospel passage from John today has within it the theme of a flock and shepherd and uh, Many, some priests will be speaking about the good shepherd image. It also has the image of um, unison, unity. Jesus says, the Father and I are one. And Jesus says, I am the shepherd and I have a flock and they are to be one. So there's this sense of unity. But there's also another theme and that is of eternal life. And Jesus says, I give them eternal life and I've chosen, if you will, to speak on eternal life with you. My friends, on Friday, very quickly, I, the children come to Mass from our school, and I attempted something that I normally don't do. I attempted to use an analogy, and it didn't work uh, <laughs> for a couple reasons. Um, but um, a priest friend of mine said, yeah, you're not good at that. Uh, and, and he said, and the reason why you're not good at that is because you don't do it very often. So I'm going to try and do it again, but on this subject. So hold on tight. So my friends, um, one of the things I want to do is, uh, I've told you before, it is important for us to understand the, not only the content, but the context in which the gospel is written. And so um, today I want to take a look at that, and John situates the scene that we've seen uh, in a particular setting. Um, we, when you study the, the whole uh, John 10, um, Jesus is walking in a temple area in the precincts of the temple. And he is doing this during a time of the Jewish celebration of the Feast of the Dedication, which we know today by its Hebrew name, Hanukkah. It commemorates the rededication of the temple in 165 BC, where the pagans had profaned it and desecrated the temple to God. The Jews recovered control of the temple, and then they lit lights that illumined their homes and the streets and the temple. And this was known as the Festival of Lights. And the use of the meaning is, I understand it, menorah. Uh, it is during this celebration that Jesus is speaking. It is during this that he promises his disciples will have eternal life, assuring them that they will not perish. My friends, in Jesus' time, this was a very difficult concept for the Jewish people, uh, because for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, they had no idea about what this was. Uh, it made no sense to them. Uh, they simply could not conceive of life without a body. And um, in later thinking, the Jewish people uh, knew that God was just. So the later thought in Jewish, uh, in the Hebrew, idea was and that God is just, and they knew in this world that good people suffered while wicked people often prospered. 
Um, and they wondered how this would be reconciled by God. How, if he's just, how does this reconcile? If God's justice is to be vindicated, uh, they ultimately concluded that there must be some kind of afterlife um, in which God will redress all the wrongs and reward the good. So my friends, uh, uh, for remember in Jesus' time, there's only the Torah. There's only the Old Testament as we understand it. So from this, Jesus is trying to speak to the people and show them where in the Old Testament they do not understand. And uh, from the Book of Wisdom, it offers one of the earliest assurances of an afterlife found in Scripture. And yet still the concept of resurrection and eternal life remained elusive to many people uh, then and to be honest, it does today also. People don't understand this. This is a difficult concept. And remember, when Jesus is talking about the resurrection, he's talking about the resurrection of the body. Jesus comes to life again. And as a matter of fact, he goes to the extremes with it. He sets up a barbecue on a beach and begins to eat because ghosts don't eat and spirits don't eat and figments of your imagination don't have barbecues for you. And mass, uh, mass delusions, that doesn't happen either. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's trying to reach us. And um, my friends, and particularly the Sadducees, uh, really found any talk of the, resurre the resurrection as ridiculous. And um, Jesus politely dismissed them <laughs> as not understanding the true and spiritual nature of human beings and of the resurrected body. And Jesus cited most famously from the Torah uh, to help show them. And this is the most sacred part of the Old, of the Old Testament, if you will, um, for the Jewish people. And Jesus would quote God's words uh, in this first encounter. One of the ones that sticks out for me is when he's talking to Moses. This is in Exodus 3, 6, and Jesus points this out to them. He says, there... God says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, implying that Abraham is dead. He says, I am the God of Abraham, implying that Abraham is alive. Now, Abraham has, and them, they have been, when Jesus comes, they have been dead for, in the body, for quite a while. And uh, um, my friends, many people today, even devout Christians, have difficulty understanding this whole idea of the resurrection. Um, partly because we've never experienced the resurrection as Jesus has been talking about. Jesus is the only one who's come back in body. There are people who have been re resuscitated in a, in a hospital setting, but not resurrected the way Jesus is talking so my friends, here's where I'm going to try the analogy. It may or may not work. It didn't work on Friday with the kids, uh, but it was a different topic I was using. But I want to try and use nature uh, as an indication. Jesus uh, used nature a lot to talk to the people to get them to understand. So I think nature offers us analogies and provides insight uh, into this idea. It doesn't take away its mystery. But, um, so I first start with St. Paul. St. Paul uses the image of a seed, giving life to a new and different form of existence. And uh, it 
He said there's a seed, and then it's a plant, and then it's a flower. You'll find this in 1 Corinthians 15. St. Paul would ultimately suggest our mortal bodies are the seed for a far more glorious body that will one day live forever with our Lord. So my friends, here's another example. Uh, would be water beetles. Now last night I was surprised how many people left the Father. I didn't know that about water beetles. So water beetles, they live on the lakes, but eventually they crawl on a twig. They secure themselves to it, and then they die. Within a small short of time, the heat, this happens during the summer, dries the shell and it begins to crack. At that point, a dragonfly emerges and it flies off into happiness. I assume the dragonfly is really happy. If you've ever seen one flying around, they seem really happy. They're a little bit scary. They're kind of, they're kind of dinosaur-looking to me. But, they're, but it becomes something completely different, and yet is it not still that beetle, in essence? And uh, this one is the most famous one, is caterpillars. Almost everybody likes caterpillars. No one's afraid of caterpillars. But caterpillars are capable of only crawling on the ground. And, uh, or, you know, on trees also. But eventually it spins a cocoon and crawls inside. And it is transformed ultimately into a beautiful butterfly capable of flying. Off into happiness too, I suspect. Of course, science calls this metamorphosis. Father's not that ignorant. I know what it's called. But I'm talking about resurrection. That's what we call that for the human body. So my friends, you and I accept these types of transformations of these lesser creatures without any question or difficulty. We're like, yeah, that happens. Why do you balk at the resurrection then? Why? Science is showing us, if you will, because I know people are like, science is in contrast. No, 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 no. There are some tensions with science and faith, but not a lot anymore. So my friends, yesterday um, I found a, a quote from a scientist. Uh, he's from the 1960s. I was surprised Mark knew I was talking about. His name is Werner von Braun, and uh, he was the father of what we know as the American Space Program. And he was talking on transformation. And for me, it becomes one of the strongest affirmations coming from a scientist that there is. And um, I want to quote what he says. Many people seem to think that science has somehow made religious notions antiquated and untimely. The scientist goes on to say, but I think science has a real surprise for the skeptics. Science, for instance, tells us that nothing in nature, not even the tiniest particle, can disappear without a trace. Nature does not know extinction. All it knows is transformation. Now, if God applies this fundamental principle to the most minute and insignificant parts of the universe, does it not make sense to assume that he applied it to the human person? He goes on to say, I think it does. And then he goes on to say, and everything science has taught me and continues to teach me strengthens my belief in the continuity 
of its spiritual existence after human death. Now, if God applied his, his scientific and mathematical principles to the most minute and insignificant, comparatively, of his creation, doesn't it make sense to you and I that he would apply this to the human person, one of his greatest creations? Why then do we balk at the resurrection and the afterlife? But more importantly for me, shouldn't you, as Catholic Christians, Christians, just simply accept the resurrection as true because Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Master, has said so? More than that, he proved it by coming back. So my friends, um, I would say please uh, take this to heart. Uh, think about this. The resurrection is important. Jesus spoke about it all the time. And uh, um, if he wasn't resurrected and if we can't be ultimately like him, as he said, then we've been duped. The greatest scam in the world. But our Savior hasn't lied to us. In fact, he came and proved it. And remember, in the upper room, after he was crucified, his best friends were frightened and scared and were locked away. Remember? They thought, he's dead, it's over and done with, he's not the Messiah. We hoped he was, but he wasn't. So Jesus comes back, has a barbecue, walks through walls, lets them touch him. From that moment on, they walked out of that room, not afraid, and began to preach and to teach the resurrection and the ways of Jesus Christ. So no matter what people tell you, it was not the Old Testament that made those apostles believe. It was Jesus Christ. Remember, they didn't have a Bible then. There was no New Testament. The Acts of the Apostles, remember the first written form of the New Testament came 60 years after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Mark's Gospel was the first one written. My friends, um, as the pastor of this Roman Catholic Church, I want to address the current situation in the United States. First, a history. For 2,022 years, the Catholic Church has been present on this earth because Christ himself said, nothing will prevail against my church. And it has been persecuted for 2,000 years by people, by kings, by queens, by governments, by different groups. And it is still here. And it will remain here long after I'm gone, long after any persecutors, the church will remain. History lesson about the United States, which will celebrate 246 years on July 4th. The Puritan Christians came, and they established. Roman Catholics, when they arrived, were persecuted by them. So in this country, 
Christians, in particular Roman Catholics, have been persecuted and murdered and made fun of for 200 years. Being persecuted is nothing new to us. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. I am an American citizen. I am a Catholic American, and I have rights, and I have a voice. Freedom of speech runs all the ways. If you want to protest, take it to the Capitol, but do not bring it to my personal home. Do not bring it to the house of my Savior. Take it to where it belongs. Do you want to be heard? Be heard. I've never told anyone to shut up, nor have I called anyone names, nor have I condemned anyone, because my Lord and Savior forbids it. 1 Peter 3.9, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, give them a blessing, because to this you were called, that you might inherit the kingdom. In Romans, St. Paul says pretty much the same. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be concerned for what is noble in the sight of all. And if possible, on your part, live at peace with all people. I try to live at peace with everyone. First Peter 3.16 Do things in gentleness and reverence keeping your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who defame your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So I see this as an opportunity to do what my Savior has asked, to love those who hate me. To those who want to protest, I say, bring it. We have been persecuted for hundreds of years. And if all you're going to bring is name-calling, come on. Up your game. <laughs> the one thing that I think is unfair is to label Roman Catholic priests as bigots, as racists, as misogynists, and to label all of us as pedophiles. That is what they are saying now in defense of their position on abortion. Father Mark, for the record, is pro-life. And when I say that, I mean it across the board. Yes, I have great concern for the unborn, for the women who are pregnant. I have great concern for the aged and the infirm and how societies treat our elderly. I also have great concern for all the human life in the middle, 
our children, and our teens, who in this society and around the world have been treated so terribly and spoken to and messed up by different concepts that they are in states of despair and the rate of suicide amongst them is high. So when I say I am pro-life, I am worried about all of it. And I am against capital punishment. I am against execution. Because if our law system makes a mistake, while Jesus can bring that person back to life, the government cannot. So pro-life means it all. Not just one piece, but all of it. I don't want people persecuting me. I search for peace in all things. But I will stand. And if they wish, then I will thank them for making my crown in heaven bigger because they simply don't understand. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. To the moms, happy Mother's Day. Let us try and live peaceably with each other, never giving up what we hold true, but to live at peace with others as Christ wanted. Huh?